Welcome to Ageless by Rescue. This podcast is devoted to exploring the science of rejuvenation, uncovering the most trusted experts, the must-have products, innovations, and technology in the field of vitality, aesthetics, new beauty, and cosmetic enhancement. Dr. Lindy Wu is a researcher and biotech entrepreneur. He's a co-founder of Life Biosciences and Jumpstart Fertility with Harvard-based Professor David Sinclair. Dr. Wu is a senior lecturer in the School of Medical Sciences at University of New South Wales in Sydney, and he runs the Laboratory for Aging Research, focusing on fundamental mechanisms and interventions that could maintain healthy aging. The research of this team has immediate applications in other conditions, including slowing the decline of infertility with age and preventing the long-term adverse effects of chemotherapy treatment. In an article recently published by the University of New South Wales, Dr. Lindsay Wu's team at University of New South Wales in partnership with Professor David Sinclair and Harvard researchers have identified a critical step in the molecular process that allows cells to repair damaged DNA. And it could mean big things for the future of anti-aging drugs, childhood cancer survivors, and even astronauts. Having recently visited the Laboratory for Aging Research here in Sydney, I was compelled to bring you this fascinating episode in conversation with Dr. Wu, as we explore the role of NAD+, the future of fertility treatments, the benefits of fasting, and the future of regenerative medicine. Well, this is a super exciting episode for me, a personal favorite that I've been trying to hunt down for a number of years. I have the pleasure of introducing you to Dr. Lindsay Wu. Dr. Lindsay Wu is one of the co-founders of Life Biosciences, um, and that's how we came to meet in my pursuit of understanding everything that Professor uh, David Sinclair was doing, I had the opportunity to meet one of the co-founders of Life Biosciences. Lindy, we welcome to Ageless by Rescue. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. So the best thing that's happened to me in my ageless pursuit was a field trip that I had the honour of having to your laboratory last week at University of New South Wales, where you and your team are in hot pursuit of an incredible solution to fertility as part of uh, a long-term study in longevity and um, lifespan and health span, which we're going to talk about later. But one of the uh, reasons that I really wanted to have you on the show is that you are, I guess, brand agnostic and a leader in the study of longevity and um, health span. And I wanted you to explain some of the science that we need to understand so that when we are reading books, being tempted to take supplements, uh, making decisions to change our lives, we better understand the science. Sure. So, you know, there's a, we could start off being very broad and just talking about extending lifespan and improving late life health. You know, the, really the goal for the field is to improve late life health. Uh, you know, there is an exponential increase Increase in diseases when we become older and you know by addressing the underlying mechanisms that drive aging we're hoping to reduce the incidence of those diseases the ultimate goal is improved quality of life when we're older this is likely to lead to overall extensions in lifespan which would be great but as I said the main goal is to extend overall lifespan 
you know, the field has sort of been around for 80 or so years, and it started off with this basic finding that if you almost near starve an animal, a rat, it lives longer. And so that was, you know, really the basic finding for, for a long time, probably until the late 90s, when the first gene mutation that resulted in an increased lifespan was discovered. And it was discovered in a little worm called Cinerodytus elegans, C. elegans. It's a little animal that we study in the lab. And since then, there's been explosion in the number of drugs and genes that have been identified that uh, could potentially extend um, healthy lifespan. Um, you know, some of those drugs are clinically available. We don't know whether they improve health span and overall lifespan in humans, but they certainly do in these lab animals. When we talk, one of the things that I've learned from speaking to you and certainly from the laboratory tour is that um, it is still a new science and so many tests have to be run before you can actually publish an article or be uh, deemed a, a correct clinical trial. In You said that, you know, this um, investigation into longevity and lifespan is about 80 years old, uh, but the, the real breakthrough happened in the 90s um, when we understood the genetic code. In the work that you're doing, what is the narrow, what field have you narrowed in on and why? Yeah, so in our lab uh, here at UNSW, we study uh, the role of metabolism in driving aging and age-related diseases. So in particular, there's a metabolic cofactor, essentially a vitamin, uh, which is related to vitamin B3, and it's called nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, or NAD. It's a really the NAD uh, is so, so, so hot. Um, so yeah. I love that you're breaking it down to say that it's, it's really not that complex so go on i want to know everything sure. about this sure so look it's it's a really prominent um, metabolic cofactor you can almost consider it the lubricant for cellular metabolism uh, for energy metabolism to occur we need this at almost every step of the way and so these nad levels we believe decline with old age or with certain disease indications and you know the, the simple story is that by boosting levels of this back up we can address some age-related diseases as well as some diseases that occur earlier in life and the one that we've had a lot of focus on in this lab has been age-related infertility or female infertility and so you know we published a couple of years ago now that boosting levels of this molecule nad could restore olsac quality or egg cell quality in a mouse uh, and that resulted in improvements to overall fertility in these mice which was a really promising finding, but of course, that's a long way from um, getting into clinical trials and into humans. And you know, you mentioned earlier how long and difficult it is to get um, these findings across into clinical trials. And you know, I just urge the caution that what we discover in a mouse it takes uh, you know years and millions of dollars before we can get these into humans. So going back to some of the supplements um, that you speak of and we spoke about a lot and certainly Professor David Sinclair uh, talks about a lot in his book Lifespan. Um, NAD uh, you've explained so um, I'd love you to go back a step maybe and talk about um, how a human cell will age and what some of the, um, the the way that the human cell ages and the way that we can go back and reverse from the science that we know of today. Sure. So there isn't just one mechanism of aging. There are a large number of um, 
processes that have been implicated in biological aging. And you know, boosting NAD levels is just one of these. And that's mostly related to maintaining healthy metabolism uh, in your cells. The other pathways that have been involved that have been implicated in how cells age have to do with uh, DNA damage, oxidative stress, um, the ability to recycle damaged components of the cell, whether the cell enters this state that we call senescence, whereby it has uh, it can't divide any further, uh, whether when a cell divides, it divides with an uneven number of chromosomes resulting in this what we call senescence. Um, you know, I could go on forever about these different mechanisms, but uh, at the molecular level, there isn't just one single pathway, sadly, that controls aging. So you talk to me a lot about, you know, the basics that you as a scientist will do, that uh, David Sinclair will do, that the people that you work with in your laboratory have adopted as a base level. And that was fasting, that was exercise, that was sleep. Um, and then overlaying of that, you're taking some supplements. So NAD being one of them. Can you explain to me, what is the difference between NAD and NR? We get that question a lot. Yeah, so look, the first thing is that, um, you know, after caution with supplements, I don't advocate anyone to go out and try these supplements. They are a fairly unregulated area. Uh, you know, we're going to a lot of efforts to uh, run proper clinical trials so we know whether they work. But in the meantime, the question about the difference between NR and NAD. So NR stands for nicotinamide riboside. Now, NAD is nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. So that latter molecule, NAD, it's quite a big molecule and it doesn't get into cells on its own. So, you know, you can take NAD as a pill or um, it's now quite common for people to, to, to take it as an IV infusion, but it just doesn't get into cells. So NAD itself is kind of useless. Um, now, nicotinamide riboside can get into cells. And so that's great. So aside from being able to get into it's a more advanced intermediate in NAD synthesis. So there's a long uh, pathway to get all the way from a starting molecule through to NAD. And so NR is you know, further along that pathway. And so that's one of the advantages of taking of, uh, of nicotinamide riboside that is further along and that it can get into cells. So it has still has to be converted into NAD, but that's the that's the theory behind uh, nicotinamide riboside. It has been approved for use as a supplement in the United States. This is a uh, what we call GRAS status, generally recognized as safe. So it has undergone some toxicity studies, although it's not to the same level of rigor that you would expect from a drug. And that was my next question. What is the difference between, you know, a supplement and a drug? Because a lot of the claims can, um, can be similar. Um, and I guess that a lot of the science starts in the supplementation area or natural, um, you know, ingredients, and then they're studied and they're modified and it becomes a drug. What's the difference? Yeah, so the difference between supplements and drugs is well, down to safety, efficacy and regulation. So, you know, the regulation for drugs is extremely intense. For good reason. These are medicines that are being prescribed by doctors. And if a doctor gives you something, you expect it to be safe and to actually does what it's supposed to, to work. For supplements, the bar is a lot lower. Supplements aren't actually allowed to say that they treat a disease. Uh, you will see that on many supplement bottles, the wording is quite vague. It doesn't actually talk about improving any particular state or any physiological change. Um, for good reason that there just isn't the clinical data to, to show that that's the case. 
if there is a clinical body of evidence showing that a supplement can do all of these things, then it can just be registered as a medicine. And that certainly was the case, for example, for with uh, some supplement-like products. So, for example, nicotinic acid or niacin is a naturally occurring supplement, a naturally occurring molecule. It's present in foods. It's fortified into breads. Um, and when used at very high doses, it can treat some aspects of cardiovascular disease. And so this was actually approved by the FDA, and it's now a treatment for cardiovascular disease as a medicine, a true drug, something that doctors prescribe, not a supplement which has a lot lower threshold for evidence. So supplements don't have to go through uh, what we call a phase one clinical trial, which is where we show in humans uh, through very rigorous studies that it's uh, safe, and you don't have to prove that it actually treats a disease. In return, um, supplements tend not to be prescribed by doctors, and they are not allowed to advertise any claims to efficacy, being able to treat any disease state. So there's a big difference in the regulation between the two. And what about um, going back to the, the supplements that you know, you're working on, and I guess you're working on proving the efficacy, testing the efficacy, registering the efficacy and the molecules as a drug. We talked a lot about in your laboratory about NMN. What is the difference between MN, NMN and NR? Yeah, so they're very similar molecules. So nicotinamide riboside is a, it's a sugar-like molecule called ribose uh, linked to a nicotinamide. So nicotinamide mononucleotide is that same molecule with a phosphate added. So essentially, it's a few extra atoms, but it's further along the chain towards NAD biosynthesis. So NMN has you know, gained a lot of popularity. Um, you, know, you can Google it and you can see there's all sorts of uh, NMN supplement uh, manufacturers. You can buy it on Amazon. Um, and you know, who knows whether it's, uh, that material is pure or whether it works in humans. We are going to a lot of efforts to try and develop NAD precursors to treat diseases. You know, so NMN uh, substances that are fairly similar to NMN. And we're going through some, uh, you know, we've, we've shown at least in animal models that they can treat certain disease states. To be fair, these are just animals, not clinical studies. And they, you know, there's a big difference between the two. Uh, and so what we're attempting to do is prove uh, you know, thoroughly that these compounds are safe to use in humans. And then to show that they actually treat diseases. So, you know, the first indication that we're looking at uh, at the moment, one of the main indications that we're looking at at the moment is age-related infertility. So this is, you know, to me, one of the great challenges facing society that otherwise perfectly healthy uh, women in their mid-30s start to have problems with fertility. And this is considered reproductive aging. And the reason is that this, these egg cells have been around for 35, 40 years. Um, and so these cells are probably the most susceptible cells in the body to the effects of old age. Um, and so that, you know, the fact that uh, society has moved to the point of, um, of, there is a trend across society to delay the age of parenthood has really pushed the boundaries of, um, of natural fertility. And so there's this huge need for assisted reproductive technologies, which can be invasive for women, um, extremely stressful psychologically, uh, so we're, you know, that's the first application that we see for some of these NAD precursors. You, you mentioned that NMAN is better than NMN. I've, I've been trying to look for this all over the internet. I can't find anything about it. Tell me about this. Sure. So when we met, I was talking about this other molecule, you know, there are 
several naturally occurring NAD precursors. So along the way, you may hear about nicotinamide, nicotinic acid. So nicotinic acid or vitamin B3 is fortified into bread. It's a really important part of our diet. Um, nicotinamide mononucleotide, which of course is relatively famous. Nicotinamide riboside, again, a famous one that's present, that's available as a supplement. Um, there is nicotinic acid riboside, nicotinic acid mononucleotide. And, you know, we're starting to see some differences between these precursors. So, um, you know, we're seeing differences between these compounds in their stability and their activity. Uh, and it does depend on which tissue that you're looking at. You know, one of the compounds that we're looking at is nicotinic acid mononucleotide, N-A-M-N, uh, which, you know, is, is not taken as a supplement as far as I'm aware. Um, of course, I've good. scoured the internet to try to find this <laughs> supplement. Yeah, look, uh, uh, and we're not planning on developing it as a supplement. We are looking at that molecule amongst others uh, for use in treating uh, some of these conditions. Um, can I ask you, speaking of drugs versus um, supplements, a drug that has had some clinical studies on, and I guess it's been available for so long, there, there's uh, long-term studies on its efficacy and safety, which you, you and I have spoken about, and certainly um, Professor Sinclair covers a lot in his book, Lifespan, is metformin. Um, have you worked with metformin in your clinical trials? And can you explain what it is and how it might work in a longevity as a longevity sure. drug? Sure. So the first disclaimer is that we haven't studied, we don't focus on metformin in this lab, but I can tell you about what it is and how it works. So metformin is an anti-diabetic drug. It's been around since the 50s or 60s. Uh, it was extracted actually as a natural product, you know, talking about supplements from the French lily. Um, and so the way it works is it's actually a mild poison for our mitochondria, which doesn't sound like a good thing. But the idea is that it triggers this stress response and the stress response can provide some benefits. So the response to having this mild mitochondrial stress uh, involves increased glucose uptake into our cells to compensate for this stress. And so that's why it's been used in type 2 diabetes, that this stress response sort of tells the cell, OK, we're having an energy crisis. We need to take up more, uh, more sugar from the bloodstream and that lowers blood sugar levels, which is important, of course, for type 2 diabetics. Uh, at this, because it's such a widely prescribed medication, where we have seen from meta-analyses that it does lead to a lower incidence of age-related diseases. So um, there's a lower incidence of cancer, neurocognitive disease, cardiovascular disease, and so on, when patients who have taken uh, metformin. What's really interesting is that type 2 diabetes on its own, so consistently high blood glucose levels, we know is detrimental to health many aspects of health. So these individuals typically have a higher incidence of cancer and neurocognitive diseases, all the things you expect during old age. The individuals who have type 2 diabetes but are also on metformin have a lower incidence of these um, diseases, not just compared to diabetics, but compared to the general population of the same age. And so that's been really interesting. Now, having said that, these were mostly, for the most part, retrospective studies. However, there are now clinical trials being planned to prospectively so to register for the future to say that we're going to test whether metformin actually treats age-related diseases or lowers the incidence of age-related diseases in otherwise healthy older people. And that was the, that's the TAME trial that has been proposed by uh, Nir Barzilai in the United States. There's another crazy supplement that um, 
is kind of doing the rounds at the moment. It's spermidine, is that correct? Yeah, so spermidine is a compound that was supposed, uh, you know, supposedly increases autophagy. In fact, I shouldn't say supposedly, at least in uh, animal models and in cell culture, it increases autophagy. So winding a step back, autophagy is this process whereby the cell recycles its in, uh, contents. So over time, the cell becomes damaged or individual parts of the cell becomes damaged. And uh, autophagy is this process. Essentially, it's like a recycling bin. You can take damaged components and you can break them right down into their components. So for example, you can take a damaged protein, break it down into individual amino acids, and then recycle those amino acids to be used for new proteins. So that process of recycling is really important. You know, and that's a natural process. process that occurs in a young, healthy body. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, the processes that you would expect to turn on autophagy. So um, calorie restriction or exercise both turn on autophagy. And it's because your cells going through this mild stress, right? There's low energy, so it wants to recycle components either to use for energy or to uh, build new components. And so spermidine is one of these uh, natural products which can turn on autophagy. And spermidine is from sperm, is that correct? No, so I, I look, it's present in uh, small quantities in sperm. Uh, and it can also be extracted from, uh, from wheat. Um, there is some question as to whether spermidine is, a, is broken down through natural oxidation to another product that is leading to these benefits, but it, you know, those results are still unclear. And there was another supplement we were talking about, I think I can't pronounce it, the one that you were saying that you, I think one of your um, PhD students was saying that it perhaps wouldn't be something you would take every day as a supplement, but you would take it once a week. Look, I think when we were talking about that, it wasn't a supplement, it was a uh, rapamycin. Rapamycin, of course, sorry. Yes, I'm glad you're glad we've got the right people talking about the right things. Rapamycin. So rapamycin is very, it's as far away you can get, as you can get from a supplement. It's a very potent drug. Uh, it's actually used in transplant recipients to suppress the immune system. And it's actually a really interesting molecule. It's probably the most robust drug intervention for extending lifespan in animal models that have been tested so far, um, you know, across evolution, uh, almost regardless of which species, of course, except for humans, because we haven't run that trial, it's too long and difficult. Uh, rapamycin extends lifespan. Now, it's a very potent drug. It's not something that you can just wander down to the GP and ask for. Yeah, as I say, it suppresses the immune system. Individuals taking it tend to develop mouth ulcers. Um, but there are some really promising results from it. So rapamycin-like drugs have actually been tested in older healthy people. So although I said it's, a, uh, it's used to suppress the immune system in transplant recipients, surprisingly brief treatment with rapamycin can in some ways rejuvenate the immune system, at least in, again, in animal models. And so based on these findings, a few years ago, there was a clinical trial to test whether rapamycin could improve the responses to vaccination. Now, this is a nice uh, trial because older people don't respond as well to vaccination. We have these seasonal flus, which um, kill older people every year. Um, you know, people forget that there were respiratory viruses before COVID that did regularly killed older people every year. And, you know, influenza is one of these, and it's still a problem. It's probably going to be worse this year than any year beforehand because we've suppressed it for so long. But in any case, you can measure the response to vaccination through the formation of these antibodies in the bloodstream. And so it's a really nice, what we call a biomarker. You can take out blood samples from these older people and you can see how they responded to the vaccination. So in this trial of otherwise healthy older people, and they were living uh, in New Zealand, 
um, you know, rapamycin improved the response to vaccination, which was really nice. But a completely unexpected secondary finding was that the rate of respiratory infections halved in those older people. So the ability to... The pneumonia and all of those things that are um, deadly. Right. Absolutely. The rates of those halved in those older people, which is a really important result. Now, that was really promising. The, um, you know, as a result of that clinical trial, that company that sponsored that wanted to run what we call a pivotal trial or a phase three clinical trial, which um, is a trial that you need to get registration as a true medicine for that disease indication. And they wanted to use nasal PCR for these respiratory viruses as their primary endpoint. Amusingly, the FDA turned around and told this company that no one cares about nasal PCRs. This is not going to be a relevant disease endpoint, which, of course, having been through the pandemic, Here we are. the population oh have multiple nasal PCR swaps, uh, you know, might not have been completely accurate. But uh, look, these, these rapamycin, you know, rapamycin itself and rapamycin-like drugs are really exciting and really promising molecules for treating age-related diseases. Um, speaking of um, the nasal swabs and how you know, quickly um, the scientific world and, and you know, our interest in health and immunity has expanded, have you found as a scientist that that has been of benefit to your research and have any new doors opened up in this space of longevity, lifespan, health span from governments, from investors that um, were otherwise kind of lukewarm before? Look, I think there is an increased uh, realisation or focus on the role of ageing as a risk factor for I should say the underlying biology of aging as something that we could exploit for uh, treating diseases. So, you know, COVID-19, uh, this respiratory virus was unusual in its extraordinary selectivity for older people. And this is a topic that I think has been, um, you know, I think it's appreciated, but many of our public health responses, I think, don't, didn't take this into account. You know, the risk for severe disease or death from COVID-19 increases exponentially with age, which means that it's very deadly to old people, but also that younger people escape almost unscathed. So in younger children, COVID-19 is pretty mild. It's not a big deal. And that's in contrast to diseases like influenza. So influenza in young kids can actually be really dangerous. Um, other diseases like RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, can also be really dangerous to kids. And this is the you know, when your kid comes home from childcare with a runny nose to a bunch of kids, that's actually a wreck. It can lead to some pretty serious disease, um, which is in response in contrast to COVID-19 and actually the other two coronaviruses before it. So SARS in the early 2000s and the MERS um, pandemic, which has sort of been going on and off since 2013. Mm. So the UK government, uh, you know, I think quite wisely actually recognized the importance of the biology of aging as a risk factor for uh, COVID-19 and you know full credit that it's now one of their uh, funding priorities to understand the biology of aging in order to treat or protect against uh, future pandemics such as COVID-19. Um, outside of that the probably not uh, I think in this country that hasn't led to a, a difference in funding priorities for um, for aging research of course there's been a huge explosion in funding for 
you know, RNA uh, vaccine manufacturing or for studying um, COVID-19, but not necessarily for aging itself, unfortunately. And another thing that we discussed when we were on the laboratory tour, which um, I found quite fascinating is you, you know, cancer is obviously a disease that uh, can hit at any age, but, you know, is, is more likely as part of an aging process. But you were um, sharing with us that um, chemotherapy, whilst it can get rid of the cancer, the other knock-on effects to aging-related diseases and um, is quite significant. And so some of the work that you're doing, the research that you're doing can really benefit cancer survivors. Yeah, that's a, that's a really uh, important topic for the lab at the moment, one of our main research areas. So chemotherapy drugs, you know, the, the most successful chemotherapy drugs are still the drugs that we had from decades ago. There have been some substantial uh, advances in oncology, so in particular immuno-oncology, so these immune checkpoint inhibitors that control the response of the immune system to cancer. But prior to that, still the best drugs we have are really old drugs, and these older drugs are fairly non-specific. So these are what we call cytotoxic drugs. They're essentially poisons that tend to kill uh, faster-growing cells at a fast, you know, more than non-growing cells, but that's not that specific a mechanism. So as we all know, chemotherapy causes this range of side effects in cancer patients, and they're absolutely devastating during cancer treatment. But you know, even following cancer treatment, these, the, the impacts of chemotherapy treatment are you know, long-lasting. So most, you know, the, one of the greatest impacts in terms of healthy years lost is, of course, childhood cancer, where you know, it's younger kids being treated with chemotherapy that have longer left to live. And those long-term impacts of chemotherapy become more apparent. So just to put it in perspective, 96% of childhood cancer survivors have at least one chronic health condition by the age of 45. Now, the and that is a direct result of not the cancer, but the chemotherapy. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And so, you know, they're seeing diseases like type 2 diabetes, uh, neurocognitive diseases, cardiovascular disease, uh, cancers unrelated to the initial cancer. So these are all a result of, you know, as a spectrum of diseases, it resemble accelerated aging. So preventing the damage that occurs as a result of chemotherapy treatment is really important. And so that's what we're, uh, you know, one of the topics we're really keen on pursuing in the lab. How can we ameliorate the impacts of chemotherapy in cancer patients, not just during their treatment, but for their longer term health so that they don't have this accelerated aging condition. And that's not of interest to the government. I mean, gosh, if you look at I mean, that. Absolutely, that, that is. Um, but I don't think uh, recognizing it as aging research has, has gained that much traction. You know, there is a case to be made to funding agencies that uh, if you are treating the symptoms of, or if you are um, improving the health span of cancer survivors, that, that is a funding priority. You know, that's recognized by cancer funding agencies that they need to take care of these patients after the cancer treatment is finished. Um, you know, the same interventions, the same non-pharmaceutical interventions that uh, are associated with healthy aging are also associated with better cancer outcomes. So, you know, with, in recent years, there's been, been this strong push towards uh, exercise in cancer patients, which is really effective. Um, Sorry, I missed that. What's, what's been the, pu the push towards what? Exercise in cancer exercise. patients. Exercise. Oh, yeah, yeah of course. Really yes. Uh, which is excellent. So, you know, the, the benefits of exercise to these patients, aside from, uh, you know, reducing the impacts of their chemotherapy, it actually makes chemotherapy more effective. You know, these patients have far better outcomes. 
and that's being that's something that's being rolled out you know around the country increasingly use exercise in cancer patients um lindy i want to talk about the definition of um aging as a disease because i guess the the science that you're working on presupposes that aging is a disease and therefore is preventable and treatable why why are we not having that conversation and why are we so um, specific about labeling other diseases but not the macro umbrella of aging look i think it kind of to be honest, gets kind of gets down into semantics as to what you define as a disease aging is certainly a condition or a, a period in your lifespan where there is an enormous increase in uh, disease risk um, this push to label aging as a disease, you know, it doesn't matter whether aging is labeled a disease or not. Ultimately, we want, we want to holistically treat this spectrum of conditions that happens to occur when we're older. So I, there's a lot of debate and I don't want to want to um, get into splitting hairs as to whether we call it a disease or not. But absolutely, there are these underlying mechanisms that are seen to be associated with age related diseases. So look, those are the processes that we want to go after. In the first case scenario, it's to uh, treat individual diseases, probably those that occur at younger ages, you know, uh, accelerated aging or accelerated risk of disease in cancer survivors is a great uh, example. Or age-related infertility, something that occurs fairly early in life, relatively. Um, those are the kinds of uh, disease states that I think we can, in the short term, prove out before we start going for, you know, this wider spectrum of conditions. And I think having, you know, a prospective clinical trial that shows a reduction in the symptoms holistically across these spectrum of diseases would be really beneficial to this to this field. You know, the first example of that is probably going to be metformin. Um, it won't be definitely won't be the last example, um, but it's it's an exciting time to be in the field. As I say, it's still in uh, in its early stages. And I think once we show that efficacy, as I say, across a broad spectrum of disease, we will be in a great place. One of the exciting, um, I guess, publications and recognitions that Life Biosciences had was being published on the cover of Nature magazine, which is the preeminent scientific publication on work that you had done on blindness. Surely, you know, this, and it was age-related blindness. Um, this wasn't my work. Um, no, no, it but it was Life Biosciences, <laughs> right? Yeah, look, so this was work um, in, in Boston. David Sinclair's academic lab um, did a lot of the work and has licensed it into, uh, it's been licensed into life biosciences. This is, a, this was a strategy of essentially uh, restoring adult cells, re reversing adult cells back into stem cells. Now, I'll just walk, the, walk you through the experiment just to take us back a step. So many adult nerves can't regrow. So, you know, spinal cord injury. Um, in an adult is not something that we can recover from. The nerve that goes from the eye back into the brain, the, this optic nerve, uh, you know, if you damage it, you can't regrow that. That's it. And so it would be amazing if we could regrow that nerve, of course, and regenerate um, vision. So in these experiments, um, you know, these guys surgically went in and crushed that optic nerve to damage it so the animals were blind. So what they then did is use a genetically modified virus to introduce these uh, what we call transcription factors. These are proteins that control how DNA is turned on and off. So those were introduced into uh, cells in the back of the eye. 
and that can that cause those cells to revert back into an embryonic state now of course when we start life as embryos we're just this mass of undifferentiated stem cells and those stem cells have the ability to turn into different tissue types skin brain liver bone so on and so uh, by converting them back into a stem cell uh, it was found that they then regrew redifferentiated into these nerves and these up, this nerve connection was regrown and the vision of these animals was, was restored so it's a really exciting finding i would caution that it's a long way from the clinic because you know the strategy of reversing adult cells back into an embryonic state is is technically extremely difficult and quite frankly a little bit risky uh more than a little bit risky the, the fear for a long time in this field has been that if you convert them back into stem cells too far that you'll end up with this massive undifferentiated tissue and it won't turn back into the tissue type that you want. And that's a big risk. Rather than going back into a stem cell and then back into a nerve, you'll go back into a stem cell and then re-differentiate into, uh, let's say, a liver cell or um, you know, the cells at the base of our hair follicles. So that's the, fit. That's the risk. Having said that, uh, this experiment that was on the cover of Nature uh, managed to pull it off and it was a really exciting finding. What I'm understanding from what you, you've been telling me and what I'm reading is that there are so many different um, approaches to lifespan science that are going on. And, um, you know, there's the work on stem cells, there's the work on um, fertility, um, disease management, uh, the reversing of the damage done by disease um, through the things like metformin. Are the scientists in the laboratories cooperative and speaking to each other so that the findings can help uh, consolidate um, the movement into, um, you know, reversing aging or age management? Yeah, look, definitely there, have been, there are regular scientific meetings devoted to this topic. Um, you know, the two main ones probably are at Cold Spring Harbor, which is a uh, laboratory Institute in New York, in Long Island, in New York, in the United States, who have you know uh, meetings every two years, which I've missed out on the past couple of years because of uh, the pandemic, but are excellent meetings. There's also an organization called FASEB that holds, um, again, alternating years, conferences on the biology of aging. So it's a bunch of scientists really devoted to this very fundamental topic coming together uh, to, dis to disclose our unpublished results to one another and form collaborations. So yeah, there's absolutely these uh, collaborations. And I should plug at this point, there was also a similar annual conference in Australia uh, that was running again up until the pandemic and we need to get back going again. It was due to be in Melbourne uh, in 2020, but uh, look, we'll get it up and running again. And so even in Australia, we've got these um, scientific meetings where people show unpublished results to one another. And in terms of... Um... Uh, speaking of collaborations and 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 working together, do you feel that um, you know, as a scientist, how far away are we from some definitive uh, drugs or definitive protocols that we can use in human trials? Because I guess that's the billion dollar question that the likes of Jeff Bezos and you know Elon Musk and um, you know, the new uh, billionaire investors who are really committed to this anti-aging technology and uh, biotech. How far away are we? So I'll answer that in a couple of ways. The first, uh, the one that I've, you know, in shorter form interviews is 
how many years are we away from having this approved to treat as aging in humans? And man, I've seen that movie before and I'm not giving an answer. But <laughs> what I will say- How do I get to be an extra in that movie? <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> what I will say is that most of these um, therapies are being developed for other diseases in the meantime. The idea is that a drug that could in the distance be used to treat aging in the meantime, a sort of lower hanging fruit, may be a disease like cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes or infertility or something like this. And so that's really where all the efforts are at. You know, it, it's a largely for pragmatic reasons. We would never have enough money to run the trial of a brand new drug in humans to see if it extended over a lifespan. That trial would just be too long and expensive. But in the meantime, if we're right about this idea of um, drugs that could uh, treat this holistic process of aging, we should be able to treat some very specific disease indications, which we know are a big problem now and aren't controversial whatsoever. And so that's where the field is at at the moment. Uh, so for example, drugs that are under investigation for um, increasing energy expenditure, which could eventually be used to extend over or treat age-related diseases. If you have a drug that increases energy expenditure in the meantime, you could use it to treat metabolic diseases, you know, fatty liver disease, obesity, diabetes, and so on. Uh, you know, if you have a drug that improves autophagy, uh, which is a, you know, re the recycling of damaged components of the cell, although that could be used for aging in itself, there are in the meantime, plenty of diseases where autophagy can be defective. Um, you know, for example, some of these orphan diseases where damaged proteins build up in certain tissues, for example, the eye, which you can, um, which you could address in the meantime. So that's a much lower hanging fruit. And the advantage of going after that lo lower hanging fruit is that it gets you into the clinic and allows you to proven on a larger scale, these compounds are safe after a long period of time in humans. Uh, one of the, whenever I speak to people about what I do and um, the podcast and the magazine and my personal passion for, you know, cellular wellness and longevity, a lot of people will say to me, but I don't want to live a longer life. And my responses are always that longevity studies are always studied alongside um, health span studies. So improving your health and vitality along with your age. Um, Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, to be honest, that's, that's literally our primary goal. That's what we think about more than overall lifespan. It's health span, improving the quality of life uh, in older people. Um, you know, aside from the humanitarian aspect of, we all want to be healthy when we're older and uh, just knowing that people are living a better quality of life. There are obvious economic implications, you know, healthcare costs associated with an older population are enormous. If we could keep older people out of nursing homes and out of hospitals, um, that would be an enormous benefit to society. If we could have people working longer and better health, that's a benefit to society. Do you think, and I, I guess this is a bit of a controversial question to ask a scientist in this field, but you know, just as there was, you know, a space race that was, you know, there was government funding, but there were always entrepreneurs and adventurers who were also running parallel uh, research mm. into space travel. Um, I'm sure that there is also privately and generously funded research and development in longevity and uh, lifespan. And as a scientist, you know, is there awareness and concern for uh, laboratories and, and research that are perhaps outside of the ethical spectrum of, you know, conventional science? 
Yeah, look, I guess you've raised a couple of points there. One is to talk about the, you know, the role of private funding. And we've been very lucky that in this field that um, you know, the goal of treating age-related diseases is, is now recognised amongst wealthy individuals as being an extremely important goal for humanity. And I've been involved with this company, Life Biosciences, which has acted as a platform to develop new drugs to treat age-related diseases. And that's something I'm very proud of. And um, I'm really excited about some of those programs. Um, and, you know, we're, we've received generous funding for that. Uh, Life Biosciences isn't the only um, company that has attempted to, is attempting to do this. There are other groups uh, which are pouring money into age-related research. You know, Google, um, many years ago, put a lot of money into this company called Calico to uh, look at age-related diseases. I don't have a lot of uh, visibility into what they're actually working on, so I can't really comment on it. Um, but no, there's no um, sort of there's no exclusion. I think I think that you know a rising tide lifts all boats. This isn't a race between different groups to see who can get there first. There are likely to be multiple solutions to improving health span and healthy aging. And you know it's to have any money, whether it be private money or public money, into any of these companies. I think is a huge benefit to everyone. Around the idea of um, the nefarious development of yeah, science. Exactly. So, so look, there. I'm picturing James happen. Bond. I'm picturing an <laughs> island. Sure. So look, there. Let me give you two um, two examples that I've heard of that aren't, you know, wide widespread mainstream uh, ethical risks, and I don't think are that serious. You know, one is this idea of uh, blood transfusions. So, to take a step back, there is an experiment which sounds quite gruesome. Uh, but is an important proof of principle. And this is where you take an old mouse and a young mouse and you surgically stitch them together such that they share a bloodstream. Wow. Now, what we see is that the older mouse, as a result of being exposed to the bloodstream from the younger animal, uh, is, has many as aspects of its health are improved. So, for example, its ability to grow new neurons, its memory, um, its muscle regeneration, all of these are improved. And so there's probably something that's present in young blood that's not present in older blood, which could provide some regeneration. We don't know exactly what that factor is. There are when some you do stem of... cell therapies at the moment, you can only use your own stem cells. That's correct, right? So stem cell therapies, you, I mean, I'd be cautious talking about stem cell therapies because in many, possibly most examples of stem cell therapy, these aren't approved medications or procedures. So I... I I'll drop that one, but you know the, the the idea that younger blood could provide some benefits to older individuals. So there was a company in California which was paying young, healthy individuals for blood donations to then transfuse into older, wealthy individuals. Oh my god! To, to, to improve their health. Uh, now, don't know whether it will work. Uh, so both parties were obviously willing. Absolutely, absolutely. This is this is not like a. So this you know, is like the vampire I mean, cafe. <laughs> that's right, mm. vampire technology. Yeah, wow. You know, I think a, a, a far more interesting approach would be to identify exactly what those fact factors are, and there are absolutely groups and companies trying to do this to identify exactly what those factors are that account for that difference, and then use that as a therapy rather than having to take blood transfusions because that is not a scalable therapy. 
<laughs> but but a, a scalable know. therapy on, based on the same principles is the gut microbiome where you take fecal um, transplants from a healthy gut and transpose it into a non-healthy gut. So you put someone else's feces into and microbiomes into a healthy gut. So so it's not such a mental leap in science to consider the blood transfusion. I mean, yes, it's more gruesome, I guess, poo or blood, I don't know. But but there is some precedence, right? Look, the, the example you mentioned of fecal microbiome transplants, FMT. So the, the best use scenario for that is or the, probably the only um, indication where this really works is in chronic C. difficile infection. So C. diff, Clostridium difficile is a it's an infection that uh, you know occurs in older people, typically in nursing homes. It's it's bloody impossible to get rid of. So individuals with this chronic C. diff infection are on antibiotics for ages. Um, it's highly infectious. It's just a nightmare to get rid of. However, poo transplants from individuals who do not have this disease rapidly clear out that infection. So this bacteria lives in the gut, and it's not exactly clear how, but the, um, the microbiome from healthy individuals, it can actually get rid of this infection. And in fact, it's more inf effective than antibiotics. Wow. It's a really exciting procedure. So this is actually now standardized. So, uh, you know, in Australia, an individual with a chronic C. difficile infection, um, particularly if it's resistant to antibiotics, will receive a fecal microbiome transplant. Uh, it's not, people don't enjoy <laughs> receiving this transplant, but it's really effective. Mm. Uh, you know, as to whether it's scalable, uh, you know, this still does require donations from individuals who have to be screened on a fairly rigorous basis. So it's actually still not that uh, scalable. But, um, you know, look, so getting back to your original question, pushing the ethical boundaries. So, you know, one was these, uh, you know, this vampire therapy, these blood donations from young, healthy guys going into older, wealthy individuals. The other example that, that I am aware of goes back to this, um, the idea of not quite reprogramming. So telomeres are the tips of our DNA. So, you know, we have a chromosome and then we, at the our very ends, we have these telomeres on either end and they kind of protect our DNA, but they shorten as we get older. And so this fraying of the ends of our DNA, these telomeres has been implicated in, uh, in age related disease. Now there is an enzyme that can extend the length of these telomeres, which isn't normally expressed in adult tissue. It is turned on during cancer, uh, which is instructive. There was a uh, case a few years ago of an individual, um, and she had a startup and her name escapes me at the moment, who had traveled to Columbia, the country, not the university, uh, to receive uh, recombinant virus, apparently through, all over her body to deliver an extra copy of this enzyme that extends the length of the telomeres. And so this was, this is absolutely not an approved therapy. And as far as I'm aware, there was no ethical clearance, you know, as background, you're not even allowed to experiment on yourself. Wow. And this had very little uh, clearance at all. Um, but look, she traveled to this place and apparently it required injections throughout her skin all across her body. No, many, many, many. Is she injuries. alive? Is she well? <laughs> no. Can we find Look, I, haven't, I haven't been following it for a while. I haven't heard from her in the news. Did you find her? But... I want her on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, she, uh, uh, she claims that 
you know, there have been were many interviews with her afterwards, and she appeared to be healthy. Uh, it's not something that I would recommend. Um, but look, those are two examples that I can that immediately spring to mind when you talk about pushing the ethical boundaries in this field. I think there is so much to explore, and it's so exciting. And just to finish off the conversation, but I, I'm going to have you back because I feel like as you make, you know, discoveries and uh, and updates on research, I would so love to speak to you again. But I'm, I am interested to ask, and I'm sure my listeners are interested to ask, and I noticed when I was visiting the campus and your laboratory at UNSW, that there are many signs around the campus for calling for people who wanted to be part of human trials for different things. So if you are biocurious and you and you know interested in the science of longevity and aging and, and are interested in being part of a study, what, what are the steps and what can you do if you are interested? So look, I'd extend what you're saying to anyone who's curious about medical research in general and treating diseases in general. It'd be great to have you as a phase one trial volunteer. So to get a new drug into humans, you know, we go through these phases. So extensive preclinical safety. So it's in animals, we test whether it's safe, very rigorous conditions. Then we have to put these drugs into a human for the very first time. And so there's this constantly this need for um, healthy individuals to act as volunteers to receive these medicines for the very first time. These take This takes place under very regulated, highly supervised conditions. Typically in a hospital setting, there are literally doctors standing over you the whole time to make sure nothing horrible goes wrong. But look, where phase one clinical trial units are constantly looking for volunteers. So, you know, it extended to anyone, you know, whether you're interested in aging research or cancer therapy. And where do you go? Do you go, do you contact um, the campuses? Do you contact laboratories? So if you just Google phase one clinical trial units, um, there are lots of units uh, just opposite me. That way I can see the building is the Scientia Clinical Trial Center, which is at the Prince of Wales Hospital uh, here in Randwick in Sydney, uh, Australia. Uh, there are similar units throughout this country and overseas. And, you know, I'd really encourage people to volunteer to be uh, in these phase one trials, you know, without your help, without volunteering for this, we, we aren't able to advance these drugs into the clinic. So I'll finish off by saying, Lindsay Wu is looking for qualified billionaires, investors, <laughs> and healthy, warm bodies that are willing to have, be part of groundbreaking clinical trials. It has been such an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm delighted. We had a couple of false starts, but here we are. And I'm just so grateful for your time. I know how busy you are saving the world one genome at a time. It was lots of fun, Baha. Thank you. It was great to chat. Ageless by Rescue is brought to you by Rescue Me Academy, Reignite Your Relationship course. Love your relationship but miss the early days? You're not alone. This course will teach you how to identify your issues, stop the fighting, find what you need to be happy, re-spark intimacy and keep the lines of communication open. Join us at rescuemeacademy.com.au to learn more about the program and to download your first free lesson. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did, please share and rate this episode. I'd love that. 